Romans chapter 2. We're going to work our way through the book of Romans over the course of most of a year. And the message of Romans, if I were to sum it up in really about one sentence, is this. The gospel is the message of a righteousness from God as a gift to those who believe. A righteousness that comes apart from works that is given uh, to those who need it. And the, most of the first three chapters are on that topic of need. Why is it that we need a righteousness given to us? And then last week we looked at Romans 1, 18-32, and we saw uh, this uh, group of people that we might call uh, pretty rough, immoral, uh, pagan types, the folks who, who might ask this question, what feels good? And that becomes the guiding principle for life. In chapter 2, we're going to see people who are much more moral. uh, People who have sort of a a good and decent way about them. Uh, These are the folks you want to have as your neighbor. These are the folks you might ask the question like this. What makes me feel good about myself? And that's what governs them. And we're going to find that really, that's not enough either. That, that that still leaves us without excuse before God. Before we, I'm going to begin reading actually in chapter 1, verse 28 for context. Uh, but before we read, let's pray together. Father in heaven, would you bless the reading and study of your word and would you persuade us of our need for a Savior and how you provided for us in your Son, that He is that Savior. Uh, give us real repentance to turn away from any false and counterfeit righteousness that we think we might be able to achieve or earn on our own. Give us a healthy dose of, uh, of, of a lack of self-confidence when it comes to uh, spiritual things and cause us to have confidence in a Savior who was righteous for us that we might receive that righteousness as your gift through faith. In fact, O oh God, give us faith as we read your word and cause us uh, to turn to you and to experience your kindness in the Lord Jesus. He is worthy and we love him. We want to hear from you. Nourish our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 1, verse 28 is where we'll start. Romans 1, 28. This is God's word. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the uh, judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? 
But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patient and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is God's word. It's completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. It was one of those aha moments. It was a statistic. Now, I like to share the statistic, but I, when I do and I talk about it, and I've done with you, a few of you, anyway, I like to do it as a sort of mini psychology experiment. The, the conversation goes something like this. Uh, are you a better than average driver? When I ask the question, I know that, uh, now I'm ruining it for all of you who haven't had this conversation, but I know that uh, the statistic is this, 90% of Americans think they're better than average drivers. Now, I'm not a whiz with statistics, but I don't think that's possible for 90% to be better than average. And uh, so it had a, a pretty interesting effect on me. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't worry about what people actually, how they answer the question. I don't think it's, it's you know, some kind of modesty to say, oh, I'm not a good driver when you actually are. So I, I, I trust you. If you tell me you are, I believe you. But uh, I was absolutely certain I was a better than average driver till I heard that statistic. And then I said, well, you know what? If 90% of people say that, maybe I'm one that really isn't but just says it. So I tried to take a bit more of an objective view toward my driving and evaluate it as I was driving, and I was shocked. I am not a better than average driver. Um, I'm, I'm really not. And I hope that since I came to that conclusion the idea that I'm not really better than average has given me a sense of, well, I can work on this. There's some things I can improve, and perhaps in those intervening years, I've gotten a little better. At least that's what I hope. I, I tell you that story because I think we might say the same thing in another context. I wonder if 90% of Americans would say that they're better than average people. If in the church, even, 90% of churchgoers would say, yeah, we're, we're better than average people. You see, what has to happen, if we think we're better than average, there's a gospel for better than average people. Here's what the gospel for better than average people says, and it's what's believed in many places in American churches. It's something like this. I will do my best, and Jesus will make up the difference. That's sort of this gospel for better than average people. Because if I work real hard and do some stuff, then I just need Jesus to top me off, to finish off the rest, whatever that is. 
Now, of course, that gospel doesn't tell you, well, how good is good enough? What do you have to achieve for Jesus to make up the difference? And, and so that's a, a pretty poor gospel for people who aren't better than average. And the truth is, this passage of Scripture is going to be the one that says, you know what? Maybe it's 90% of the people aren't better than average. Maybe it turns out that there's something that's really wrong with us that only an amazingly great gospel, not one that says you do your part and Jesus will do His, but one that says you are clothed, whole cloth, with the righteousness that is a gift to you from God, received by faith, that you could not earn or achieve in any way. What I hope this passage will do for you today is drive you to that gospel. That's what I hope. Now, I will warn you, this isn't an easy passage. It is painful to listen to if you hear it right. So, I I don't say that with great joy. I don't want to cause anyone pain. But this passage will expose in us a great need. I want you to see how Paul does this. In in, in chapter 1, like we studied last week, we saw this immoral person who disregards God, suppresses the truth, and ignores it. And then lives in any way he sees fit. And God is letting him go, worshiping those false gods and going into debauchery and destruction and all kinds of, of evil. We read that passage, you heard the list of evil. And, and look how Paul describes these people. Verse 28. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up. Verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, and so on. In verse 32, though they knew God, knew God's decree, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to them, uh, to those who practice them. And you get this they. It's those people out there, and they're all bad, and they deserve to die. And, And we listen in and we go, that's right. Murder? evil, inventors of evil, these people are ripe for justice. They. And then Paul says, therefore, verse 1, chapter 2, therefore, you have no excuse. You who've agreed with me so far, looking on these people who deserve judgment, you have no excuse. Because you judge them and then do the very same things. Now, you may hear that and say, okay, I believe the Bible. I think God is true. So, this must be true. I'm just not sure how that's true. Do I really do that? I've read chapter 1. I didn't see myself in there. Or, perhaps, you are more suspicious of the Bible. And you hear this and you go, I don't think that Paul got that right. Let me help us think about it just a little bit. It starts very, very early. You've had this conversation or one very close to it. You're with a sibling. You have a cookie that you're splitting. And here's what you say. Hey, that's not fair. You're, you got the bigger piece. Heard that conversation? Been in it? But you know that if the tables were turning, you got to pick, you would have taken the bigger piece and thought that was entirely fair. Here, you're judging your sibling for doing the very thing that you would have done in the 
and probably did in other situations. But it's not just for kids. It happens as we grow up, too. Uh, a few days ago, I'm walking in Walmart down an aisle, and there's someone there, another shopper, who's kind of in the middle of the aisle. And there's not room to go to the right or to the left around them, but I want to go faster. And I'm thinking, how could you not be aware of people? Get over, right? Some of you, you the laugh says, I know, right? So you want to get over, so you say, excuse me. No, yeah, right. They move over and you go on. And two aisles later, I'm sitting there going, I can't believe people aren't paying attention until my thoughts are interrupted with, excuse me, the very thing that I criticize someone for, I do. The very thing you criticize people for, you do. How about this one? You get in the car. You're driving and someone pulls out in front of you and makes you kind of hit the brakes and slow down and you're thinking, what are you doing? You know, what you want to do is when they look in the mirror and see you, you want to go like this. But then you're criticizing their driving by taking your hands off the wheel, which seems bad. So you just say in your head, didn't you see this 4,000 pound piece of metal hurtling at you? And then a few days later, you'll pull out and you'll look in the rearview mirror and there comes a car slowing down hard behind you. And you'll hear their thoughts. Didn't you see this 4,000 pound car hurtling towards you? The very thing that we criticize in others, we do. Now you say, okay, look. This passage says they deserve to die and we're like that. It says that we're storing up righteous indignation and wrath for ourselves. Are we really doing that over, I wanted a fair share of the cookie? I, I want to be able to move around in the aisle at Walmart. I don't like how people drive. These small things, is that what really earns us wrath? Well, it's not just the small things. Let's take the bigger ones. In the passage that we read last week, Paul spent a great deal of time talking about how homosexuality was a sin that was rampant in the pagan lifestyle and that what they were doing was ignoring nature. And you and I look at that, probably most of you, look at that and say, yes, that is what's wrong with the world. And we point our finger and we say, it's evil and it deserves judgment. And could any of us say we're altogether sexually pure? Jesus said this, now, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, don't even look lustfully on another person. For when you do that in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And which of us is free from that? Well, that lustful thinking is part of the human experience and all of us are guilty. And so all of us are sexually broken. Just like the homosexual. All of us have taken and said, the people around me are here for my pleasure and to fill my needs, and we treat them like objects, just like the other sexually broken people in Romans 1. We even do it in our marriages. This person that I'm supposed to love, I tend to think often is here to make me happy and to fill my needs, and I treat them as if they're there as a, a tool, like the television. Just make me happy. That's what you're here for. And so I, I treat them as an object and dehumanize them just like the sinners in Romans 1. And you do too. Okay, so fine, maybe that's true. But there's a whole long list. What about murder? You know, you think about the, the gang member who has grown up with urban violence everywhere. And so when the rival gang member invades his turf, he knows how to deal with it. 
He gets rid of him. There's violence and someone dies. It's murder. But you're like, we would never do that. But think about your life. Think about someone who kind of got in your way, got on your turf, as it were, who messed things up in your life. And think about what you do. You know, maybe you don't murder them, but you sure look for anything you can say bad about them to somebody else. And so we we gossip behind them and try to murder their reputation. And we look for their failures and and we, we laugh at them and take joy in their disappointments and their frustrations. And what we're really doing is saying, you deserve to die. And we judge them. We stand over them. We murder them in our hearts. And, you know, what, what you're really seeing is that while the, the, that murder in urban violence that we wouldn't ever do, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's what shows up above the water. It's only 10%. The 90% below the water, the anger and the rage toward people who've offended us, it's the same. It just looks a little different on the surface. But it's the same. And so the very thing we judge, we do. But you know what? That's still the small stuff. Murder and adultery is actually the small stuff. The thing that really clinches this for us is that the biggest problem that immoral pagan had in Romans 1 was that he exchanged the glory of God for the image of something created, the image of man or beast. Now listen, I want you to listen very carefully to what Paul says. Look at Romans 2.1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, everyone who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. Do you hear that? We know that the judgment of God, God is the judge. God is the one who does the judging. So when you decide to judge someone else, and judging here means something like this. When you look at someone else's failure and it makes you feel superior to them, that's judging. When you you take pleasure in someone else's failure, that's judging. So anytime you've ever felt superior to another person, you've judged. That's what that is. When you judge, you're replacing God as judge. You're saying there's a true judge, it's God, He's the right judge, but I'm going to judge in His stead. And what you've done is you've exchanged the glory of God for the image of man yourself. You've done the very worst of the things that's described in Romans 1. There was... a one of those street preachers at uh, Clemson, South Carolina, stood up there and he did the traditional street preaching type of things. Ranted and ranted about the traditional, you know, sins of college students. Whatever those things might be in your mind, he just did it. He was up there for 30, 45 minutes. There's a little crowd gathering around, mostly to mock him. And uh, he's going on and on and on about how evil college students are. And finally, one, uh, a person I knew to be a Christian, asked him, listen, what's the most important commandment? 
Well, the man knows his Bible to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then this Christian turns to the crowd. He says, any of you have loved God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength since your birth? And not a hand rose. He said, look, they've just admitted the greatest sin. Who cares about the others? Tell us what to do. Listen, who cares whether it's murder or gossip? Who cares whether it's coveting or idolatry? Who cares whether it's backbiting or disobeying your parents? We're all guilty of exchanging the glory of God for another because we judge and hold ourselves as judge when it should have been God. We've done the worst of all sins. The rest is insignificant. That's why we're without excuse and under condemnation. But it's not just that. We, we change that standard. We lower it a little bit. You know the way we judge? The way I, I change God's judgment, not from His holy standard, but to my unholy standard? You know, I'm going to judge you, but I'm going to say, listen, if you're a little bit greedy, that's okay. Because i got to be okay with that because I'm a little bit greedy. And, and if you're a little bit racist, but you just don't talk about it, that's okay because I think we all are. And if you're a, a little bit, uh, you know, dishonest, just as long as your dishonesty doesn't cost anybody money, that's okay. We're all like that. And so what I do is I take that standard and I drive it down lower. And, and so if my first problem is that I judge people, if your first problem is that you judge people and then do the same thing, the second problem is that we lower the standard. Look at this. Verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The idea is something like this. I'm doing okay. Things are decent for me. God's been kind to me. He must be okay with me. I've got His kindness. He hasn't crushed me yet. I must be okay. And so I'm going to presume on that kindness and keep going in the way I'm going. And that He'll accept that my moral actions will outweigh the bad things I've done. And so I presume on His kindness that I will be enough, that His standard is graded down to mine. But we're going to learn yet He's not partial. He doesn't curve His standard. Look what He says in verse 4, or sorry, verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, He will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. Now, listen to that. To those who with patient in, uh, in, in, patience in well-doing. Well, well-doing is good works. Patience is this word that's kind of like long-term or long-suffering. Literally, it means steadfast endurance. So with someone who is consistent and persistent in their good works, they're seeking glory and honor and immortality, God says, if you do that, I'll give you eternal life. So all you've got to do is one command. Do this. But remember, our common problem is that we exchange the glory of God for something created. So instead of seeking glory, what do we do? He tells us, verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Listen, self-seeking is the 
is, is the death knell for us all. After all, what do you do that isn't self-seeking? Everything that we do is at least marked by that self-seeking. Everything. You know, husbands love their wives. Christian husbands love their wives in part because God commanded it. That's a good reason. In, in part because we see in this other person someone who is worth loving because they're made in the image of God. That's a good reason. But also because I just need a happy house because I want to be comfortable. And so hidden in all this tangled motivation of why I love my wife is something self-seeking. And God says, when you seek that, you've exchanged the glory of God for something created. You've stopped seeking glory. You're seeking self. And you're condemned. And you could do that with anything. Let's say we decide we want to go do Habitat for Humanity. And and there may be good reasons. I think it's good for the community. And we're pro-community. I think it's good for people who are in need to help them. It's a godly thing to be gracious. But I also just like to feel good about myself. I like to be seen. And so a part of me just says, I want my reputation to get that bump. Everything you do, if you ask the questions and think about it long enough, you're going to discover self-seeking in everything that you do. And so every one of us is condemned here. We've taken the standard and said, yeah, but isn't it okay for us to have a little self-seeking? Everybody does. And God says... There will be no partiality. If the Jew is self-seeking or the Greek, they're under condemnation. We can't measure up to the standard. So we judge those who do the same thing we do, and so we're condemned without excuse. We lower God's standard, trying to make room for ourselves, and so we're condemned and without excuse. But then the last thing, and I'll do it quickly, we find that uh, we can't even keep our lower standard. We've, we've lowered the standard, and we can't keep that either. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Here's his basic argument. If God were just to take your conscience alone, it would condemn you on the day of judgment. If you were just to take the standards of your own heart and compare your life to it, you wouldn't survive. Francis Schaeffer calls this the, the invisible tape recorder passage. He said, imagine a, an invisible tape recorder hung around your neck and uh, it records everything that you say and everything that you think. Every time you look at someone and you think about their life, that's recorded. Everything that you've said be recorded. And on the day of judgment, God says, okay, you know my holy standard, but let's look at yours. And he pulls the tape out and puts in and hits play and begins to examine it and then look at your life, he's going to be able to point out places you couldn't stand up to your own standard, even though it's lower than God's. Our own consciences will condemn us. Isn't that true? Just think about your life. Aren't there things that you go, okay, I've done that. I'm ashamed of that. I won't talk about that. I've thought those things. 
that I don't think people should think. Here's how I know. Let's pretend I found a book with your name on the cover. And it said underneath, everything you've ever done or thought. Right there, it's written. And I were to pull that book up and I brought it up here and I showed it to you and I said, who would like me to read their book? This room would clear out so fast. Bam. None of us would be up for that because we know who we are and our own conscience will be enough to condemn us. And it's true across all of humanity. You know, uh, God commands do not steal. That's God's command. But you know, that's on the heart of every human being. Every human culture across all time, they may have different ideas about what property is. They might not recognize copyright laws and mental property or things like that. But they all recognize property and they all think stealing is bad. In fact, your kids know it. They know it early, as soon as they can talk. Because what's one of the first things they learn to say when a child steals their toy? That's mine. They recognize it as stealing and they condemn it. And the same child will steal a toy from someone else. And you and I do the same thing. We know that there are standards. They're built into our heart and we can't keep them. And so everything about us condemns us. You you see why you need now a righteousness that comes from outside. We could never measure up. We can never meet God's standard. We could never get over just the idea that if God were to judge us on our own standards, we're still condemned. We have no hope of measuring up in any way. We must have a righteousness that's coming because what we're due is righteous indignation and wrath that's been stored up. I I told you this would be painful. There's good news coming. The promise is that Christ has brought that righteousness that you need. Christ has brought that righteousness that you need. But in our natural state, we got it coming. In the movie Unforgiven, great western, one best picture I think in the early 90s, Clint Eastwood plays a a former killer from the western area. He was known as a a mean uh, man with no conscience. And he got married and for 11 years has been out of that criminal uh, riffraff and has been a, basically a straight and narrow kind of guy. But in a, a distant town, there was a, a woman who was uh, criminally abused by a couple of cowboys. And so her friends put together uh, a money for a price on his head, on the, on the two cowboys' heads who did the, 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 that um, abuse. And Will Money... Clint Eastwood hears about it and uh, along with a couple of friends and his friends need the money so he's willing to go with them to help. And as they make their travel up there, Ned Logan, played by Morgan Freeman, is trying to convince himself that this is a justified thing to do. As he hears the story of what they did and how awful it was, he says, well, they got it coming. And they get up there and they find the first of those cowboys and they kill him. And the women who had put the price on his head on their heads, are, are, are threatened in the street because of what's happened. And they shout, they had it coming. And the second of the cowboys is killed by one of uh, Will Money's friends, uh, a young kid, the Schofield kid. 
And he bragged a lot about being a cold-blooded murderer, but he never killed anyone. And when he did, he realized it turned him into a monster, even though he killed a criminal, a guy who had it coming. And he was trying to deal with the, the guilt and all that was crushing in on him. He began to say, you know, uh, I, I can't believe it. Uh, those two men, they're dead, all at the pull of a trigger. Uh, Eastwood's character, Will Money, says, it's a, it's a big thing to take life of a man, to take everything he has and everything he's going to have. And the kid, trying to justify himself, well, they had it coming. And then Will Money issues the money line of the movie. We all got it coming, kid. The, the good guys and the bad guys. We're all standing before God with dirty hands. We all stand before God without excuse. And the only hope that we have is if we open our hands to God and say, will you fill these hands with a righteousness that I can't do? And he says, then have my son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask for your blessing on our reflections today. We, we want You to give us faith in Christ. We want You to help us see Him and trust in Him and, and to abandon our false hopes of being good enough and maybe Christ fixes the rest. To leave that in the dust. We are not righteous. But Jesus was. Clothe us in His righteousness and give us faith in Him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to change the uh, the hymnal, or the hymn we're going to sing as the last hymn. Instead of number 49, we're going to look at 57. Hymn 57, we're going to sing verses uh, 1 and 4. 1 and 4. So let's stand and sing. 57.